Our first scripture reading today is from the book of Psalm, Psalm 112, verses 1 to 9. I invite you to follow along on page 563 in the Pew Bible, Psalm 112, verses 1 to 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Happy are those who fear the Lord, who greatly delight in his commandments. Their descendants will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. They rise in the darkness as a light for the upright. They are gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with those who deal generously and lend, who conduct their affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. They will be remembered forever. They are not afraid of evil tidings. Their hearts are firm, secure in the Lord. Their hearts, their hearts are steady, and they will not be afraid. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have distributed freely and have, been, and have given to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn is exalted in honor. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading today is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. I invite you to turn to the Bible that you have in your hand and follow along. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. As part of the Sunday lectionary readings in the month of February this year, there are three lessons from Matthew 5 of what is commonly known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We know in his teaching, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what he called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm very much aware that today, unlike uh, probably someone like myself who was born and raised in Hong Kong and was a citizen of the United Kingdom for a long time, the word kingdom is somewhat culturally distant from the experience of most 21st century Americans. And so I would actually suggest using the phrase God's world instead. You see, Jesus said that God's world was both future and present. That is, in the future, God will install a new structure, a new government, if you will. And this, he says, is what it will look like. But then Jesus also says that God's world has already, in another sense, entered into the present age. Last week, we briefly looked at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in the first 12 verses, what's commonly known as the Beatitudes. And today, we're going to look at the second part of the Sermon on the Mount, starting with verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory 
to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you may say salt water is pretty useless. Sure, it plays a critical role in the delicate balance of the global ecosystem. But apart from that, for the average Joe, salt water is just regular water's annoying cousin, if you will. Apart from nursing the occasional sore throat or putting together a stellar fish tank, what good is salt water? Think about it. You can't drink that stuff. You can't water the lawn with it. And it feels so weird after swimming around in it that if you are like everybody else, you will immediately jump in the shower to remove it. That's right. Salt water is mostly useless. Until now, that is. You see, we have modern technology. And today it's getting easier and easier to transform salt water with its limited usefulness into fresh water. The kind that we human really, really need. The process is called desalination and is taking off around the world, especially in areas where potable water can be hard to come by. Take the tiny island state of Singapore in Southeast Asia, for example. Just a few years ago, the country opened a desalination plant that can produce 36 million U.S. gallons of fresh water every day by, pull, by pulling it straight from the ocean. That's more than 10% of the country's supply. Through a simple but powerful process, places like Singapore now are able to remove the salt, rendering water that was of little use into water that helps people survive. While desalination is a good thing when it comes to water, Jesus tells us that it's a really bad thing when it comes to his people. You see, in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus looks, at, looks out over uh, his followers all over the place and proclaims in verse 13 here, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's foot. Those are tough words for sure, but in order to understand them, we need to grasp them from a first century perspective. For most people today, salt is a seasoning. It's used a matter of personal taste balanced somewhat against the doctor's warning to avoid sodium, of course. But that's only because refrigeration 
and canning technology have made its use in history, in the past, not so much in the present any longer. It's a food preservative back then, but it's now somewhat obsolete. In the centuries before refrigeration and canning, a modest supply of salt in the pantry greatly helped to expand the range of foods that could find their way onto the family dinner table year-round. That's why salt caravans, hauling sacks of stuff from mine to marketplace, were among the, were among the earliest commercial enterprises back in those days. Armies, in fact, have marched to secure supplies of it for their countries. And sometimes it has even been used as an alternate currency. If hearing the word salt reminds us only of a short shaker or the tasty little crystal that stick to our pretzels, for example, Jesus' metaphorical use of it can seem downright trivial. But from his perspective, you are the salt of the earth definitely refers to a valuable commodity. Jesus' point here is that those who belong to him, those who live under his reign and rule in this world, are just like salt. When it's out of the water, it's incredibly useful and surprisingly valuable, not because it makes a great state take us better, but because it can make God's world known to other people. For example, we have the ability to tell people about God's world through the way we admit our faults, the way we cling to Christ, the way we love our enemies, feed the needy, strive to keep our promises, and so much more. All of this Jesus goes on to outline later in his Sermon on the Mount. Members of God's world, those who have been chosen by grace and brought to life in his love, have a surprising usefulness in this hurting world when we respond to that grace by walking in love. And so while we can cheer the process of desalination for seawater, we should be on the lookout and fight against the same process when it comes to us, God's salty people, if you will. After all, when a few gallons of water from the ocean lose their salt, you get something great. But when followers of Jesus lose theirs, the world misses out on experiencing the kingdom, and we lose out on the joys of being a blessing to others. Jesus then goes on to urge us here to serve as lamps for one another. Notice here that he doesn't say we are to be stars. They only dazzle and inspire. Jesus calls us to be lights for the world, not exploding supernovas. Unfortunately, there seem to be a lot more Christians today who want to be stars than are willing to be lamps. You may remember Jesus encountered the, the star syndrome among his own disciples. In Matthew chapter 20, the sons of Zebedee and their equally ambitious mother petitioned Jesus, begging him to save them seats in heaven. 
Remember that? Mind you now that James and John don't want just any old place. They specifically asked Jesus for the star seats at the head table. Those immediately in his right and his left hand. James and John are looking for stellar status. A place where they may shine down on others. Well, Jesus tries to teach these two star seekers that their request is wrong-headed for two reasons. First, Jesus claims that heaven seating order is the Father's domain and not His. And more importantly, Jesus patiently reminds James and John that the way they may emulate Him and be first in the kingdom is through selfless service to others. Doing for others, not looking out for ourselves, is the only way to turn up the candle power on our individual lives. As the story goes, an elderly deacon at the Baptist church in town wore the same suit to church week in and week out, year after year. Some of the more affluent members of the church got together and contributed some funds to buy him a new suit, since the old one was so tattered and worn. The deacon took the money quietly and without much fanfare. The patrons worried if they had offended him. But since it was a small town, they soon learned that he had gone to the best store in town to buy a new suit, and in the process, had enough money left over to buy new shoes, a new shirt, and a new tie to go with the new suit. All the Baptists were waiting for him on Sunday. The faithful old deacon never arrived. Now, sure that they had offended him, the benefactor sent some of the other deacons to his home to see what happened. When they asked him about his new suit, he admitted that he had bought one, and he told them it looked really, really good on him. In fact, it looked so great on him when he got ready for church on Sunday morning that, quote, I looked at myself in the mirror at all my new clothes and how well I look, just like a star, and I just decided to go to the local Presbyterian church instead. Well, okay, as James and John demonstrate, you see, there are lots of people today who wish they were stars. But what Jesus teaches here is the need for more lamb Christians. You see, lamb Christians are those who willingly burn out in service as both disciples and mentors for others. Now, we all know about being disciples of Jesus. But what does it mean for you and me to be modeled, to be mentored Christians? I believe the role of the Christian mentor is that of a lamb helping illumine the pathway that lies directly at his or her student's feet, offering guidance and service in direct, maybe even pedestrian ways. As the psalmist says in our first reading today, they rise in the darkness as a light for the upright. They are gracious, they are merciful, and they are righteous. As a child, didn't you love to sing, this is a little light of mine? I'm going to let it shine. The only problem with that song is that it focuses exclusively on the single beam of light entitled 
admitted by our small, singular lives. You see, Jesus wanted us to think corporately about the illuminating power he generates in each of us. The city built on the hill that he mentioned is not noticed because one long light flickers in a window. It is really the combined wattage of an array of lights, each burning in its own place, but for a common purpose that sets the city ablaze in the midst of a dark and dreary night. George Bush, 41, may have said more than he realized when he touted the thousand points of light theme when he was president. You see, there are no lamps that cannot throw some light on some darkened portion of a fellow traveler's pathway. And so, take confidence in the potential power of your lamp, for its light source is truly unquenchable. The psalmist reminds us that the eternal flame of Scripture is always available to us for additional fuel. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, remember? What's more, in your light we see light. As disciples of Jesus Christ, as lights of the world, we have been fully qualified. And so we need only let our lamp shine that others may see and find a way, the truth, and the light. And so you may say salt and light are contrasting and yet complementary. Salt preserves what is, and light reveals what is to be. Well, salt works best by definition when invisible, when mixed in with food, and light works best when uncovered. The first enhances, whilst the second enlightens. But each, in its own way, is vital to human life. In his sermon, The Church, popular American preacher and writer Frederick Buechner, whom I quoted last week, also says, Jesus calls us to show his truth forth, live this truth forth. By the light of the world, he says, where there are dark places, be the light, especially there. Be the salt of the earth. Bring out the true flavor of what it is to be alive truly. Be truly alive. Be a life giver to others. That is what Jesus tells the disciples to be. That is what Jesus tells his church, tells us to be and do. Love each other. Heal the sick, he says. Raise the dead. Cleanse lepers. Cast out demons. That is what loving each other means. If the church is doing things like that, then it is being what Jesus told it to be. If it is not doing things like that, no matter how many other good and useful things it may be doing instead, then it is not being what Jesus told it to be. It is as simple as that. I'm sure for those here who love the game of basketball, may think you're a great basketball player when you're by yourself. The ball goes behind your back, under your leg, and right into the basket. I'm sure it's very impressive to watch you play by yourself. But let's just say one day, Joe Embiid or Ben Simmons of the Sixers came over 
to your house and wanted to play basketball with you. Well, suddenly, you are not that good anymore, are you? Every time you go up to shoot, you kind of eat that ball. Yeah, you see, the way to find out how good you really are at basketball is to actually put yourself up against some six foot ten or even seven footers, especially when they're superstars. It's the same with us spiritually. We're not spiritual just because we get excited about a sermon or a song on Sunday morning. You see, Sunday is safe. We are surrounded by people who agree with us. The test of how good we really are spiritually, deep down inside, actually comes on Monday mornings. Indeed, for us to be a witness for God used to be a living sign of God's presence in the world. What we live is more important than what we say because the right way of living always leads to the right way of speaking. When we forgive our neighbors from our hearts, our heart will speak forgiving words. When we are grateful, we will speak grateful words. And when we are hopeful and joyful, we will speak hopeful and joyful words. And so may our lives give us the right words and may our words lead us to the right life. And may our God give us the ability to truly be salt and light in our bland and dark world in order to bring someone just a step closer to him. Amen.